Good morning. That's all. I was just wondering when that was going to... Some of you don't know me. You're thinking, who is this fellow? <laughs> well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Doug Cooney, or Pastor Doug Cooney. Uh, my wife Linda and I are a part of the Skyview community, have been for the last couple of years. In a previous uh, life, I was a pastor for 26 years with the Church of the Nazarene, and then a hospital chaplain for 13 years in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And then we retired. In the midst of doing that, we spent some years in England and uh, had all kinds of wonderful privileges. And uh, right now, uh, these days, uh, Pastor Stu and his team have allowed me to be sort of a volunteer member of staff, an unpaid member of staff. And uh, I do some Bible study leading uh, and uh, get to attend staff meetings and uh, also occasionally get to preach. So this is a great privilege for me. And also to serve communion, which is an extra privilege for me. Um, I was thinking when I came up, I was carrying my water bottle, and uh, that always makes me a little nervous. It's a strange thing that's happened in the churches and organizations, because when a speaker comes up with a water bottle, I think of two things. They're either going to be really long, or they're going to be really dry. <laughs> and uh, that always concerns me. I promise to do my best not to be either really long or really dry. But uh, once again, I appreciate the privilege of sharing from the Word and of serving communion this morning to all of you. So I welcome you and I greet you. And if I don't know your name or we don't know your name yet, hopefully we will soon. And uh, please feel free to speak with me anytime when I'm around. Uh, any pastoral concerns or needs, in particular in the area of Bible study or opportunities to learn like that, which is my first love. So, as I come to the scriptures this morning, let's pray together. There should be a prayer come up on the screen. And I invite you to join with me aloud in this prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the Scriptures are read and your Word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. I want to read to you from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. It's a bit of a lengthy section, but it's probably my favorite section out of the Gospel of Luke, one of my favorite Bible passages. It's a story that's best known as the story of the road to Emmaus that follows the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, takes place on Easter Sunday in the evening. And uh, I invite you to listen to this as if you were listening not so much to what's being read, but to a story, because this was originally told verbally, orally not read between the pages of a black leather-bound book or whatever color, or from a page. But this is the word of the Lord. Now, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. 
And moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told who were with us, went to the tomb, and found it. Let me back up. Okay, getting ahead of myself. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they indeed had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see him. And then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he was going on, and they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they came up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together, and they were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had been known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I have to excuse my tongue-tiedness there. I don't do this as much as I used to. When uh, for many years I was preaching three times a week, I got kind of used to this. But uh, i got to confess, I get a little nervous now. Uh, but uh, my tongue uh, got ahead of the words. Some of you know me fairly well. Some of you don't know me very well. But if you know me at all, I hope that you would have noticed that I am by nature an optimist. Now, COVID-19 has not helped me to be optimistic, and there have been days uh, when I have found my optimism stretched almost to the breaking point, but on the whole, I'm an optimist. When I was working in the hospital in Saskatoon, my manager one time took me aside and said, Doug? And I said, yes. And she said to me, is it really hard to be as positive as you are all the time? And I thought, and I said, no. Not really, because that's who I am. Oh, she said, it just seems to me that would be so much work. <laughs> and sometimes it is, but most times it isn't. Now, optimists generally see the donut first and then the whole. A pessimist sees the glass as half empty rather than half full. An optimist sees the opportunity in a problem, while the pessimist sees the problem in the opportunity. And so it goes on and on, all sorts of metaphors and similes. Optimism or pessimism are products of our experience, and I would suggest to you products of our DNA a little bit. Optimism or pessimism might be seen as our default worldview, where we go when placed under stress or under strain, under pressure, do we become optimistic? Do we become pessimistic? 
The pessimist is the one saying, I see a problem in that. And the pessimist is more saying, hey, we can do that. And the world needs both in balance. And some of you are more naturally pessimistic than others. And some of you are more naturally optimistic than others, and that's all good. That's just the way we need to be in a group like this. We need each other. But I firmly believe from the bottom of my heart, from the depth of my soul, that the Christian faith is an optimistic faith. With its foundations laid firmly on what one writer calls the optimism of grace. During these days, our pastoral team has been leading us in a series of sermons on grace. And I'm continuing in that this morning. And the title or the topic that I was given is the optimism of grace. The phrase has often been employed to describe the faith and practice of John and Charles Wesley, our spiritual forefathers as Nazarenes, as those of the Methodist tradition. This morning, I hope to suggest to you and perhaps convince you that as Christ followers, we can approach our lives and our world with optimism with an optimism that is firmly rooted in our trust in God and our faith in Jesus and the present power of the Holy Spirit in our world and in our lives. So let me start by referring back to verses 13 through 24, which I won't reread for you, but talking about what I've called the paralysis and the power of the past. Everybody has a past. Everyone has a past. Some have a really difficult past. Some even have a horrendous past. Some have a painful past. Some have a wonderful past. Your past and my past is the result of a lot of circumstances that were and are still beyond yours and my ability to control. But my past and your past has also been impacted by good choices and bad choices that we have made, that we are responsible for, and that have consequences in our lives. Everybody's past is different. Nobody's past is the same. And everybody's past has power. We might as well admit that and own that and realize it, because it's true. It has power to shape Power to discourage, power to embarrass, power to hurt us and others, even power to paralyze and limit and impact our present and our future. I would like to suggest to you this morning that our past has as much power as we will give it. Our past helps form and reinforce what we might call our default setting. Now, I'm not much of a computer geek. I like my computer when it works, and I don't like it when it doesn't work. I've threatened occasionally to throw it out in the driveway and run over it, but I'm glad I didn't because they're expensive. But computers have what are called defaults. It doesn't mean it's the computer's fault. It's not default of the computer. But defaults are where the computer goes automatically when faced with a certain set of parameters or a certain request. We have our defaults. 
We humans have our defaults, actions and behaviors and responses to which we return when faced with stress or anger or discouragement or any variety of circumstances, often things largely out of our control. And I'll let you know a little bit about Doug Cooney. One of my defaults when faced with conflict is to run. I don't like conflict. I don't do conflict. It's caused me all kinds of grief over the years. I'm getting better at it. It's one of the things I've learned in a lot of work that I've done with my, myself and others. But I still don't like conflict. And so if there's a conflict looming, you're liable to see me withdraw. Now that looks different. Sometimes it means I head for the door, not often. But many times it means I clam up. I don't like to fight. I don't like to argue. I can do it, but I don't like it. So in that situation, when it comes to conflict or anger or those sort of things, my default is to go immediately to withdraw, to clam up, to shut up, say you're entitled to be wrong, I'm not going to argue with you. It's not the best default, it's not even a good default, but I know that that's my default. And so I have to deal with that because anger and conflict come to all of us and it can be handled positively, it's not necessarily a negative, but I've had to learn that. I don't know what your defaults are in that situation or in others, but we all have them. In the passage before us in Luke 13 to 24, these verses, we have two unnamed disciples, well one is named Cleopas, on the road to the village of Emmaus. It's Sunday, the day of the resurrection. Uh, they've heard these weird stories about Jesus not being in the tomb, and some have said they've seen him alive. They're shaking their heads about this. But what do they do at the end of the day as the sundown approaches? I'm suggesting that they go to their default, which is to go home to the village of Emmaus. I don't know what they did there. Who knows? Maybe they, you know, ran a computer shop, or maybe they were far Who knows what they did? But I think that that was their default. We don't know what to do with this situation, so we're going home. <laughs> And so they set out on the road to walk to Emmaus. Remember Peter? Peter's default was to go fishing because that's what he knew how to do. He was a fisherman. When he was faced with, with Jesus' crucifixion and all of the things that went with that, he decided he was going to go back to fishing. And Jesus met him there, but that's part of a further story. These two gentlemen, I'm assuming, though they may have been a husband and wife, they may not have been two gentlemen, could have been two ladies, who knows. But they were on the road to Emmaus. And on the road, as they walked along to Emmaus, someone comes alongside of them and walks with them. That wasn't uncommon in that day and age. People traveled together. There were robbers and thieves on the road. It, you know, past the time. You didn't have a phone to look at when you were walking down the road. So they talked with each other. So a third person comes along and joins them. They don't know who it is. They don't recognize him. And on the road, as they walk along, these two discouraged disciples who had lost their hope, perhaps resigned to the seeming dashing of their dreams because their rabbi and leader was gone, they thought. Speak with this person. He talks to them. He shares the scriptures with them. But they still don't recognize him. What are your defaults? Where do you go when life is hard? or unfair, or frustrating? Anger? Aggression? Blame? Ridicule? Self-loathing? Depression? Self-harm? Withdrawal? Where do you go 
These people return to their default, heading back to Emmaus. What's your default? Or do you regroup and refocus and reflect and rethink and restart? What events or interactions of your past shaped you, impacted you, and perhaps entrapped you in a past that's debilitating? Does your past control you? Do you see yourself as a victim? Does that view of who you are cause you to give up and live in resignation that this is just how things are? It's always going to be like this. It always happens to me. Or does the past make you lash out angrily? It's your fault. I'll show you. Do you sometimes feel you're stuck in an endless loop like pushing repeat on on a music track? A bad tune. Our past may and likely does shape us. Can't deny that. It's an absolute truth. But our past does not have to control us, paralyze us. And who we are today or who we were in the past, who we are today, may influence but does not have to demand what we will become in the future. There's hope. There's change. There's power to transform in the optimism of God's grace. And so, if we think then for a bit, as we did, about the past, about the paralysis and the power of the past, there's no point denying that that's true and that that's a reality, let me point you to what I believe is the optimism and the power of God's grace. Grace is, Sunday school definition, the unmerited and undeserved favor and goodness of God. Grace is sometimes understood as being the freely given love of God and the unmerited mercy by which we're reconciled to God. Grace is that power of God, the Holy Spirit, which works within us to will and do God's good pleasure. Grace is the recovery of the image of God marred by sin, restored by God's grace. Grace is your inheritance. Every single one of you, nobody here is without an inheritance of God's grace, for it's freely given to us all. Grace is God's restoring, loving work in our lives. Grace is kind of like wiping the fog off the mirror after you've had a shower and you can see your face clearly rather than through the mist and the fog that's on the mirror. Grace is about restoring our relationship with a holy God who wants to have a relationship with us, who freely, openly longs to be in relationship with his creation, who loves us. Grace is God's goodness at work. I see it in your lives. I see it in my family's life. I see it in my life. Sometimes I have to look hard. I see it in the life of the church called Skyview. God's Amazing goodness at work. It's God's expression that he believes in you. We all think it's about all believing in God, and it is. But did you know that the creator of the universe believes in you? Yeah, he does. 
My first Nazarene pastor in a little town called Melfort, Saskatchewan, was a wonderful man whose life was a testimony to God's grace at work, to the miracles that God can do in the life of someone totally committed and holy in relationship with God. Hugh Gorman was raised in one of the most poverty-stricken areas of Belfast, the Shank Hill Road area of Belfast. I've only been in Belfast once. We drove through that area. It is one tough area. And during the Troubles, as they were called, Belfast as a whole was a tough city, and it didn't get any worse than the slums of Shankhole Road and that area of inner city Belfast. Hugh was raised there. He was a hard-drinking, hard-fighting, angry young man. He would say that himself. He was going to be with the Lord about a year ago, so I'm not telling any stories. If you want to know about Hugh Gorman's story, track down a little book called Requiem for a Rebel. That was Hugh's autobiography. Tiny little book. But he describes himself as a hard, violent, angry, ungodly young man who was constantly in trouble. But time and time again, as Hugh came out of the pub on a Saturday night or walked down the road during the day, a minister who did some street preaching would stop him. A minister who happens to be the father of one of our best friends in Manchester. This minister would stop him, take his arm, look him in the eye, and say, Hugh Gorman, God can change your life. And Hugh would shake him off and walk on his way, laugh. And one day God did. One day God did. God changed his life. And if you know Hugh Gorman, you know that's true. If you haven't met him, that was a privilege you missed. God can change your life. I don't know where you are. I don't know, I don't know almost any of you well enough to know where you've come from or what's happened to you or, or where you're at right now. But this I do know. God is in the business of changing lives. God is in the business of changing lives. God met my friend Hugh and changed his life immediately in some ways and over a long time in other ways. So sometimes it's not instantaneous. Sometimes it is. What happened to him was both immediate and long-term. But he would have said that his past no longer enslaved him, his passions no longer corrupted him, and he became a new and a different man. And over the years, as Hugh cooperated with God and the Holy Spirit worked in his life, he was a new and different and changed person. This morning, whatever your past, whatever you've experienced, and it may have been really hard, really awful, really nasty, really painful. Whatever your challenges this morning, whatever your weaknesses, no matter how many times you've failed, if you desire it and are willing for it to happen, God can change your life. God wants to change 
Is everything going to come up? Roses tomorrow morning? Probably not. Are you going to be set free from some of the fears and worries that you have? Maybe in part, maybe in whole, maybe not right away. If you wear glasses, are you going to wake up and be able to see without them? No, probably not. (laughs) You know what I'm trying to say. But there's an optimism in God's grace because God loves you more than you can even imagine. He loves you more than you love peanut butter or whatever you love. God loves you. And God can and longs to do for ourselves what we cannot, but we must cooperate with him. If you hang around the Church of the Nazarene long enough, you will hear the word sanctification. You will hear the word holiness. That's a scary word. (laughs) You will hear the word consecration. Another pretty scary word. They don't need to be. The optimism of God's grace, God's sanctifying grace. Sanctify means to make holy, means to set aside for God's use. That's what sanctify means. In the temple in the Old Testament, the priest would sanctify the elements, sanctify the vessels, would set them aside no longer to be, have porridge and bacon and eggs made in them. No, not bacon. Uh, eggs made in them. No, 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 no. <laughs> but to be used for God's purposes. If we're willing to have our lives set aside, dedicated, committed, consecrated, God will make us new creatures. God will change our lives in big ways and little ways. Now, does that mean temptation disappears? No. As one of my parishioners in my first church said, being a Christian or being sanctified doesn't mean the birds still don't fly in the air. They just don't land in your hair and stay there. No, temptations will will exist. Does it mean that one can cease to work at behaving and becoming more like God wants us to be? No. We cooperate with God. Does it mean that it happens instantaneously? Some cases. Does it mean it happens progressively over time? In more cases. That's my personal experience. But trust me in this, it happens. God changes lives. Does it mean we cease to be human so we're perfect in every action, word, thought, and deed? <laughs> Sorry. Ask my wife. She'll tell you that is not true <laughs> about me. No, we don't become perfect in every action, word, thought, and deed because I've got news for you. We stay human beings. <laughs> and human beings mess up because we're human beings. But that isn't where we have to live and stay and exist. Your past remains. You will always have your past. But it need no longer control you. That's what it means when I say that God looks on you with optimism. God sees you as you can be. Isn't that neat? He sees the possibilities. He sees what we can be when the Holy Spirit dwells within us in fullness. That's the promise of God's optimistic grace. So I've got really good news for you this morning. 
God is an optimist, and he is optimistic about you. God believes in you. He has possibilities for you. He has purposes for you. He has power that will help you be what God wants you to be. That's the message, if you will, of holiness or sanctification. God can change your life. The past doesn't disappear, but it doesn't have to dictate what the future is. God's promise is what is offered to him, he will never, ever reject. But will instead receive and purify and empower lives that are totally committed and given to him. God can change your life. And do what you can do. Do what you cannot do. Some people need big changes. Other people, little tweaks. I don't know whether you're a big change or a tweaker, but God can do what's needed to do in your life to enable you to do what he wants you to do. And that's where the fun is. That's where the fulfillment is. That's where the joy is. That's what it means to walk in faith with Christ. God can change your life, and God longs to change your life. Will you let him? Let's pray. Gracious God, powerful God, the God who loves us just as we are and where we are, but longs for us to be more, more like him. I pray that this morning, if there are people here who are stuck in a default that they don't want to be stuck in, who are living lives that are not the way they would like them to be, but have a dream of being more, that they would find that dream fulfilled as they commit their lives fully and completely to you, taking their hands off the past, letting it go as much as they are able, for we never totally forget, but learning from it, not being paralyzed by it. I pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit would draw near to them, would equip them and empower them and fill them. Help the people here today to believe in themselves because you believe in them, but most of all to believe in you and your power and your desire. May they experience this day and in the days ahead the optimistic grace of God. In Jesus' name, amen.